Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Ken Stanley, and I'm currently a research manager at OpenAI. Um, actually, just joined and starting a new group there on open endedness. Um, before that, um, I was actually uh, leading uh, Core AI research at Uber AI, mm-hmm. um, and I was also a professor at the University of Central Florida, um, and also the co-founder of Geometric Intelligence, which was acquired by Uber several years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and my sort of primary areas of research have been with neural networks and evolutionary computation, open-endedness, and neuroevolution is what it's called when you kind of combine those things together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations for your new role at OpenAI. I, I would like to go first when you were a child, and I would like to go when you are like five years old, six years. Have you ever imagined about something related to intelligence or something really instilled in you to investigate later on in your, uh, now in your career? Yeah, actually, yes. Um, I did have an experience as a child. Um, I was, um, before the age of eight, I didn't really think about computers. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, I was, my, my parents enrolled me in, in this um, summer programming course, um, which was um, like to learn how to program in basic, the programming language basic, on uh, TRS-80 computers. Some older people may remember those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the, that was during summer camp, so I was missing soccer, you know, and at first I was very upset and uh, didn't think I was going to like sitting in a classroom. Um, but I really, really got interested fast, and it was kind of interesting what interested me, because, you know, I, I started understanding what, what programming was, like, because you were learning to program, and what I really became interested in very quickly is I wanted the computer to kind of surprise me. Mm. Like, I had this feeling that, like, using programming, you can tell the computer what you want it to do, and somehow it seemed to me, I mean, at the age of eight, that, like, the most interesting thing would be if the computer kind of did things that I didn't know it would do. And sort of, in that in sort of way that was like to me was like being like a person. Like a person mm-hmm. is fun and interesting to engage with because like a person doesn't just do things you told it to do, but it sort of surprises you. Um, and I so I, I, I did relate it a lot to AI. Like in my mind, I, I heard about AI. Uh, I didn't really know much about what AI was, but but I started to try to program the computer to have a conversation with me. Like then, like using basic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got really obsessed with this question. Like, I, I wanted it to have a conversation where it would be like a real conversation. And of course, this is one of the hardest problems in the world. But I didn't know that. So I thought, I thought this is something that, like, if I could just read the right book or something, I would just know how to do it. Like, I felt like I just need to learn how to do this. I didn't realize that this is like one of the hardest problems, like ever, ever tackled by by humankind. And so eventually, it dawned on me that this is what this is AI, and that it's really hard. And then it's actually like a research topic. It's not just something where you just read a book and you can program the computer to be your friend. Um, and so, but I got hooked at that point. So I was really interested from that point on, just at a very early age. And just 
not just intelligence, but in kind of surprise, like surprising intelligence. I really want to be surprised. That's very interesting. And when was the first machine learning system you built later on? And you began to figure out your thoughts or maybe what you're interested in later on, if you remember. Yeah, the first machine learning system, um, that would be probably all the way in college or grad school, maybe. I mean, it depends on what you consider machine learning. Mm. Um, I actually wrote a program in high school, which might be considered machine learning, um, which was actually a genetic algorithm, but I, I didn't know that's what it was. I'd read the biology textbook, like for, for high school biology class, and I, I read the evolution chapter, and I thought it sounded like something you could program. I was like, mm. this could be really cool. Um, so it just like, independently occurred to me to do this. And I, I tried to write an algorithm that's sort of like evolution. Um, I, I'm just not sure it counts, though, because it really didn't do anything very interesting. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but it did sort of converge on something. So maybe that should count. I don't know. Let's go at the age of 16. But like a real machine learning system, probably not until even um, graduate school when I really got into it. Mm. Like in college, I knew I was interested in AI, but I was focusing on natural language processing, um, which wasn't so much about machine learning back then, um, like much more about it now. Um, and my, my interest really shifted in grad school to the learning kind of concept. I realized that's what really interests me, learning. Mm -hmm. Great. So if I ask you in your, in your experience, what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed about artificial intelligence, machine learning? Uh, the biggest misconceptions? I, yeah. I think that they would be, they would be just about um, what we can do and what we can't do with it mm. right now. Um, like people, people have very diverse opinions about that, mm. um, even in the field, but outside the field especially, of course. I mean, if you haven't been studying this for years, um, it's a big black box and you don't know what does AI even mean? And then you see a computer do something interesting and you might conclude it can do anything or that like, you know, the, the Terminator is around the corner or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, but not, not to diminish the importance, obviously, of being safe about what we do with this technology. But I'm just saying it's very hard for, I think, most people to estimate where we are and how far we have to go to get to certain milestones that, that concern everybody, both positive and negative. Um, and, and so people's opinions are all over the map. Mm -hmm. And what do you think may be the biggest limitation for deep learning and reinforcement learning as well, and evolutionary strategies? Yeah, okay, so the biggest limitation for all those things, these learning algorithms, um, let's see, I, I think that there's, you know, we could talk about things like um, generalization being a challenge. I mean, that's a, it's a clear thing for reinforcement learning. It's like getting very good generalization. But I think what I would point to is something closer to what's the interest for me, which is open-endedness. Mm. Uh, which doesn't get talked about as much, but I think it's a very big challenge and very important, which is this ability basically to be creative. I mean, open-endedness is about, I mean, for those who don't know, it's, it's about um, being able to produce and discover and invent and innovate basically unboundedly, but basically forever, I mean, in, in the most ambitious version of it. Um, and this is something that humans are able to do. Like, we continue to invent and innovate for for all of the eons of, of, of human history. Mm -hmm. um, and we, it's not just in, in literal invention, like building things, we do that, but, but also in other spheres of our interest, like music and art, 
Um, we are inventors and creators, and I feel like that's one of the most intrinsic aspects of, of being human. Is that's what we mean by self-expression, you know? But there are things that that humans can do that aren't so human. Like for example, multiply numbers. Like you can find someone who can multiply two really large numbers, and you might be impressed, um, but you wouldn't be like, oh, the humanity. You know, that's not that's not what we think of as humanity. We think of humanity as in sort of embodied in creativity and sort of saying, wow, you know, where did that inspiration come from that led to this beautiful thing or this powerful thing or this inspirational thing? And so that that is something that I think is sort of distant mm -hmm. from algorithms that are today very focused on sort of just solving a problem or optimizing towards a solution. Like creativity isn't really about a solution. It, it may be that there isn't even a problem being solved. Or perhaps the problem is to identify a problem, mm -hmm. um, and that's what creativity is about. It's like these are problems we haven't even thought of yet that are really interesting, but somebody needs to identify those problems so we can then approach them. And so I think that's lacking, um, and open-endedness is a way to describe that that path that we need to take to be able to start to address this issue of being able to sort of innovate, discover, and invent artificially. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, and I would like to ask this question. What do you think the area or direction of research is could be promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Oh yeah, I guess I guess I'll, I'll take the easy answer and go with open endedness again. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say that the community disagrees, so I wouldn't go that far. I, I think it's more that they, they're not showing um, as much interest as it deserves. Um, so it's more that it's open endedness as as a problem or, or as as a grand challenge, is sort of the way I like to think of it out as like a grand challenge, just the way AI is a grand challenge. Open-endedness is just doesn't have hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Um, people don't haven't historically spoken about it very much, um, even though to me it's this like profoundly interesting aspect, not just of, of of humans and humanity because it is, but but also of nature. You know, nature is open-ended. Like evolution on Earth was open-ended. That's like probably the most salient aspect of evolution is its open-endedness, like real evolution, not evolution algorithm, but natural evolution, where, I mean, if you think about it's the most prolific inventor of the known universe, like it's invented all of nature, every single living thing you see out the window is a single run of a single process, effectively, which is the, the run of natural evolution on Earth. And so open-endedness is around us and it created us, like our minds, our human level intelligence is a product of an open-ended process which is evolution on Earth. And we ourselves are opening. Like our minds have the capacity also to open-endedly discover and invent. And to me, this is just absolutely fascinating because its power is just um, beyond anything else. I mean, think about it. We're talking about literally the power of creation. This is what created all of living nature. Um, and yet it's just this very small niche that, that is rarely discussed, at least maybe until very recently, um, in the larger AI machine learning community. Um, and so I, I find that's very interesting that, that there's this this huge kind of uncharted territory which has so little, relatively little attention compared to these other areas, like say reinforcement learning, where there's a ton of interest, and deservedly so. But but open endedness just hasn't garnered that yet, and I think there's a lot of kind of interesting historical reasons for why that is. Um, but I think that that it it deserves to change, and that the change is starting now. But we're going to start seeing that this is this is a very important topic for the field of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. 
And I'm curious to ask you, as your new, your new mission at OpenAI, what could be the short-term and longer-term challenges beyond open-endedness as well? For my new, in my new role? Yeah. Um, you think beyond open-endedness? Yeah. If um, you imagine something like that in a longer term, and what could yeah, be challenges? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, first I would say that, that open-endedness to me is a long-term challenge. So this is a very, very ambitious thing mm. to go for, you know, as I see it, like the, the ultimate kind of holy grail of open-endedness is the system that would continue to be interesting forever. Um, and so that means like you press this, the, the start button, you get the program running, and you come back the next day and you say, wow, that's pretty cool. And then you come back the next week and you say, now that's really cool. And then mm. you come back another week later and say, well, that is really, really cool. And then you come back a year later, and 10 years later, and 100 years later, and a billion years later, and it's still cool. Oh. And this, to me, is unbelievably ambitious. Like, there is nothing even close to being able to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 you may it maybe even seem so ambitious that it could even seem impossible. Like, what could possibly, could, what kind of program could you possibly write that would be worth coming back a billion years from now? I mean, assuming we could keep the, the, the program going that long. And, and I would say, but, but you can't deny that it's possible because look outside the window. I mean, this is a program that's been running for more than a billion years and producing stuff. That's what nature is. Um, and so we know that these kinds of phenomena exist. And so I think the long-term goal is, is to just be able to do that, not to reproduce nature itself. Like, I, don't, I think there's a more abstract issue here, which is the ability to produce interesting stuff in general. It doesn't have to be like life on Earth. Um, but any kind of interesting stuff in perpetuity without bound is just incredibly ambitious and is definitely a very long-term challenge that's not going to be solved in the next you know, a couple years, most likely. Yeah. There, are, there are steps on the road to that. Like, maybe I can create systems that are, stay interesting for, for like a few months. That, is, that would be pretty, pretty good for now. Um, but to make something that's worth running a billion years, that's, that's something that's beyond the scope of what we understand stand right now um sometimes mm-hmm. I, I like the term the never-ending algorithm um, like we'd like to be able to create a never-ending algorithm mm-hmm. and so i think that's the long-term goal is the never-ending algorithm mm-hmm. um and just to give credit for that it was john baptiste Marais who came up with that term um so, so there's a shout out to him i really like the term yeah so if i ask you what research direction look most promising for future work in genetic algorithm and neuroevolution for example um, how do you see speeding up the, the process and decreasing uh, computation requirements? Yeah. So, yeah, in evolutionary computation and neuroevolution, um, I think what, what we have to do right now is grapple with um, the convergence with uh, deep learning, um, like especially in neuroevolution. I mean, neuroevolution is about evolving neural networks. Um, and it exists as a field, uh, at least to me, let's say it exists is one of my great interests because of what I said about evolution on Earth. Like, I wasn't so inspired by optimization. Like, it's not so much that, like, I think evolution is a great optimizer. Um, I mean, gradient descent is a great optimizer. It's proven to be a great optimizer for neural networks. And my inspiration wasn't really about, like, just optimizing neural networks. My inspiration was this idea that, like, evolution on Earth is this amazing creator and can produce systems of increasing complexity. I mean, we're talking about... Um, the human human level intelligence, and we're talking about brains that have on the order of uh, trillions of components, hundred trillion connections, roughly, let's say. Um, and so I was interested in like, well, what kind of processes can, when you run them for really long, get up to that level of scale? And evolution, uh, in that evolution, is an example. 
and open-endedness is, is sort of the the the, the underlying um, sort of secret sauce that, that gets it there. Um, and so, but what we're what we are now kind of um, intersecting with is is that there's been enormous progress on training neural networks. Um, mm-hmm. That's outside of neuroevolution, which is in the, in the field of deep learning. And so, what we have to do, I think, is to understand where does our understanding and intuition, and also just the research results and, and the insights that we've gained through neuroevolution and understanding the emergence of complexity, where does that actually complement what we've also come to understand about gradient descent and the training of neural networks and reinforcement learning? But those things, those things intersect in a kind of a complicated way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and, and to, to some extent, the, um, deep learning negates some of the contributions of evolution um, to the extent that they're not needed anymore. But some of the parts of evolution are, I think, still needed, or at least the insights that we gain from it, because we need to understand it as a holistic process that produces complexity on a massive scale, but we don't actually know what we're optimizing towards. I mean, that's a property of evolution, because it's open-ended. We don't know where it's ending. Mm-hmm. And so we still need to understand systems like that, but they can now work hand-in-hand with the technology that we have thanks to deep learning. And so I see them as very synergistic, and that the insights just, you get to identify the right insights and not be dogmatic about, well, I just like neuroevolution, or I just like deep learning, so I'm on a different side of this issue. To me, they're both complementary, and the challenge here is to understand how they're complementary so that we can get the best convergence of all these ideas. Um, and I think that's where the future goes. I mean, in terms of efficiency and compute, like you mentioned, um, clearly neuroevolution faces uh, compute challenges um, because of the fact that um, there's a certain expense to having a population inside of a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen we've seen uh, recent advances like in evolution strategy and so forth to try to mitigate compute to some extent, even to such an extent that like we can envision that there could be future hardware paradigms um, that could actually um, move it up to um, almost neck and neck with, say, the current um, parallel processing power through like GPUs that we see with deep learning systems. Um, it's conceivable um, because evolution is just so easily parallelizable. In some ways, it's simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with massive parallel scale, you can get massive amounts of parallel computation and parallel uh, evaluation of populations of neural networks. And so I think um, exploiting parallelism um, is, is very important for really capitalizing on the power of evolution. Um, but beyond that, it's not just about making evolution work, it's about taking concepts out of it. So like, there are things in evolution like divergence or diversity um, that are general principles that you don't even have to actually be doing evolution to use those principles. Um, like how divergence happens in, in the open-ended explosion of complexity and evolution is not just about evolution. It, it applies to also just learning in general. And so the other thing we need to do is export these concepts formally from an algorithmic point of view outside of evolution into things that are only pseudo-evolutionary, like deep learning systems that are still population-based, for example. Um, and that will cause, I think, a lot of these principles to live on, um, but in new paradigms and in new contexts. Mm-hmm. I think this question may be relatable here. What parallel to nature do you see possibly influencing uh, your research going forward? Um, what, what parallel to nature? Yeah, do you see possibly yeah. kind of influence in making research going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very influenced by nature, mm. so um, so I I I, I think that I strongly believe in the question that like we we are um, we should be influenced by nature mm. um, because nature. I mean, in some ways, it's a truism. Like, I mean, why are we interested in intelligence? Well, it's a natural phenomenon. It appears in nature. Um, and why am, why would we be interested in neural networks? Well, well, I mean, we could debate about this, but I think it's because ultimately neural networks are a natural phenomenon. We have networks of neurons, and that happens to be the substrate where uh, intelligence arose. But it, it arose in nature first, um, before in computers. And, and we also have evolution, which is a natural phenomenon. It's not, a, it's not first and foremost an algorithm, it's a natural phenomenon. And now we're trying to uh, translate that into an algorithmic framework. And so, um, so nature to me is, is full of secrets, or rather what I mean is that it has some deeper truths that we don't fully understand. Um, and when we, when we come to understand those by trying to formalize it in algorithms, we gain very deep insight that allows us to accelerate forward in our ability to produce really complex systems or intelligent systems. Um, and so why I say they're secrets is because if you just look at, say, a biology textbook and you read about, like, how does evolution work, for example, um, you, will not, you will not from that have any idea how to write a program that produces anything like what we see happening on Earth in evolution. Um, and that, that's because what's really happening is much more complex than just the explanation that biology provides for it. Um, an explanation is not sufficient to actually write a program. Like we need an actual formalization, and so there are there are underlying aspects of it that are very counterintuitive and surprising. That that it, it has to be that way, because if it wasn't that way, then we would just program and it would just work. But we can't because it's much more complex than it seems, or rather, maybe not just as complex but more subtle. Like the real reasons that things work aren't the reasons that they seem to work. Like a lot of the time what we do as sort of training computer science and engineering is impose our view of sort of optimization as like the solution to everything on our thinking about things like evolution. Like we think of it primarily as an optimization system. Um, we think of sort of like survival as this sort of like hardcore optimizer that's forcing things to, to become more and more adapt, adapt to their environment. And this, um, this is not necessarily actually right. Um, like the, the primarily, the primary explanation for why is all this stuff the way that it is that's out your window, all of nature, um, is not necessarily because of something like optimization, and so so those intuitions could be misleading us, and what what it really I think like for example what what's really important is divergence, not optimization. It's the idea that we have a process that is able to push across the space of what's possible and yet still be constrained to do things that are interesting, as opposed to just doing all kinds of trivial, crazy things. Um, and this is a different kind of intuition, a different kind of view, and leads to a different kind of algorithmic formalization, like novelty such as like an algorithm from my career that some people might know, um, which is an algorithm which is basically about just finding new stuff as opposed to trying to solve a problem. Um, and so that takes inspiration from observing, in part from observing nature and, and interpreting it in a different way. And I think we have more to gain from doing that um, to interpreting nature and thinking about it differently and questioning our assumptions about why it works the way that it works and what makes it work. That's important. And if I ask you what are surrounding evolutionary methods do you see lacking the most attention or having the most potential value? So, um, I think we should 
we should look at um, quality diversity methods, um, which is kind of a new area of evolutionary computation methods. Um, and, and I want to acknowledge, to, just to be transparent about this, that, that I've been involved in uh, kind of developing this field called quality diversity. So, so okay, I have some self-interest in promoting it. Um, but I but I believe that it's um, it's right that that this is important in a broader sense than just evolutionary. Um, like in quality diversity means how do you create systems that will find lots of diversity, but also quality within that diversity. Um, and so it's very related to evolution because if you think about all the niches that exist in the world um, in in that in, na in nature, natural evolution, like within those niches we have high quality, you know, like, I mean, the, the things that, the giraffes are very well adapted to, to, to eating the leaves off of trees, and, but, but of course trees are adapted to a completely different thing, like extracting nutrients out of the ground. Um, and so we have sort of like real quality, uh, but in a very, very different and diverse types of application. Um, and you might think of it almost like a repertoire, like many different abilities, uh, each honed to kind of specific problems. Um, and all generated in a single run. And that's what the field of quality diversity is about. And it's like algorithms that are literally trying to generate repertoires, rather than single solutions, but whole repertoires of skills, basically. And obviously they're inspired by this kind of observation of nature. And I think that those, um, those that algorithm, this sort of um, new nascent field of quality diversity, is important beyond just evolutionary computation. Because mm -hmm. I think that we want, we want quality diversity. We need to pursue quality diversity um, across all of machine learning. And so it deserves more, I think, recognition and attention to our understanding of the underlying tenets of that area um, to begin to, to, to make this its principles a little more universal um, so we can get to um, open-endedness and AGI because of that faster. Yeah. And do you think learning theory and proofs can give us insights in deep neural network? Or do you believe our mathematical machinery just isn't potent enough to handle complicated nature of uh, deep neural network? Right, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, um, learning theory. So I think I have not, I have not been good at that. I'll, I'll say that. Like I, my insights when I think of things, they usually come from more sort of getting an understanding of nature at an intuitive level than from sort of theoretical analytic apparatus of mathematics. Um, but that's not to say that others wouldn't get uh, very useful uh, leverage from those things. So by all means, we should be pursuing that. I would never dismiss that as being important. However, I would say that it doesn't seem to be the thing that's really pushing things forward right now. Um, so like we do have sort of some some machinery in, in machine learning for, for for the analysis of learning algorithms. But like when you look at neural networks, they, they have at least up until recently been, been rather ad hoc, like in terms of like when there's been innovations that have sort of catapulted the field forward, um, they are more like somebody kind of came up with a clever riff on something that might have been roughly inspired by some intuition as opposed to through Sort of formal mathematical analysis. Um, in fact, people complain that there's there's not sufficient understanding of like why, from a from a formal perspective, like why do neural networks do as well as they do? Mm. Um, and so, so I think like if you had to place bets, I'd say there's probably there's 
currently less weight on that kind of a thing in terms of like whether it's going to lead to our success. Um, uh, and and but but it's still it's still worth doing because of the fact we can't discount that it might. Um, so so I think we, we need to basically my view is always keep all our options open. You know we don't know yet what's going to lead to this, this holy grail ending point, which is very far away still. Um, and so we do need to keep our keep ourselves um, adept at many different things, and, and that includes the learning of theory and, and, and the analysis. But but I right now I think it doesn't it's not paying off as much as sort of the, the more informal, intuitive uh, style of progress, which, which for people who are in those more formal areas may be maybe slightly uh, frustrating. Mm -hmm. And was there any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical results proved otherwise? Have you ever witnessed like that? I'll take that. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, right. A direction that I thought would, would go very well, but yeah. results proved otherwise. Yeah. Um, think about that. Um, I um, <clears throat> I have I have uh, gone down some roads that, as as have many, uh, that haven't that haven't uh, ultimately led to a, a great amount of of of. of, of of, of progress for the field, so that's true, and and I mean that, that's what researchers experience. Um, and so, like one thing was, I was I was interested in the idea of that maybe we could um, we could measure like the amount of effectively amount of in information that uh, that an agent is is consuming as they act uh, as a way of knowing whether they're actually acting intelligently. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's sort of like if, if you if you want to see like you learn learn to sort of go down a hallway without bumping into the wall. Well, I, what I want to know is is it paying attention to the wall? Um, and and so I would sort of reward the paying attention. So if I have evidence that it's paying attention, then the paying then that sort of means that it's learning something about the wall. Um, and this was me myself and my students. We worked on this for a while, several years back. Um, for a while, I was really excited about this. Um, but it just, and, you know, some of our experiments did kind of work, but it didn't really lead to any, any big breakthroughs. Unfortunately, uh, I wouldn't want to throw it away. Um, yeah. Maybe it should be revisited, but, but it just didn't go anywhere really far, unfortunately. Um, so, so there's something, um, sort of like information-based, information-gain-based kinds of measures of, of performance. Mm -hmm. And if I ask you what do you think the maybe the recent result of papers on deep neural network that you found incredibly surprising for you. Mm -hmm. Incredibly surprising recent results. Yeah, for papers. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think that um, what has been surprising for me is the, is the success of adversarial play. So like when the computer plays against itself um, in, in big results, like, like, um, Dota or AlphaGo, um, that, that 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 some some of the leading organizations like like um, OpenAI or DeepMind have, have shown, um, and and, be, and the reason is because you know I was part of a field that's that's much less known now, but I was part of this field called coevolution, and coevolution meant like you have agents evolving and while they interact with each other in some some domain, and often it was a game, and so you'd like say try to evolve role-playing agents 
using evolutionary algorithms, but evolve them against each other. So they're trying to get better and better and better, sort of in an arms race. We want to have an arms race. And coevolution is a field that was sort of active around, I don't know, 1995 to like 2008 or something. It was very active. And then it just kind of just disintegrated a bit. Like it, it stopped being an active field. Like even the gecko track, like gecko is a big evolutionary competition conference. It, it disappeared actually. It stopped existing. Um, but I was part of that. I was I was interested in that for a long time. And, and and sort of one big takeaway from it was it was really hard. It was like harder than than we thought. Like it seems at first like such a promising thing. You know, think about like just have your computer play uh, go against itself, uh, and 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 then you come back a week later and it, like it can beat you. Like no one needs to be good at go. Like you don't have to tell it how to play. It just plays against itself. It gets better. It was almost too good to be true. And in fact, it seemed like it was too good to be true because it wasn't really working. And there are all these reasons that people were identifying, and a lot of them were sort of appealing to game theory. Like, here's why we can get stuck. There are things that can happen, like mediocre stable states or the Red Queen effect. There's all these names for things that can go wrong. And, and sort of it, as the field began to fizzle a bit and became more theoretical because people were working through these problems and trying to understand them, mm. um, you know, I kind of came away feeling like this is going to take forever to really make arms races work for real. But then we come back, like, more than 10 years later, and it's suddenly, like, working with, like, no effort. Like, it, to me, it's, like, very strange because, I mean, it's not, like, no effort, but, but what, what I mean by no effort is, like, the, the new stuff, like the AlphaGo or the Dota, it's, like, they weren't even, they weren't referring back to this coevolutionary literature and, and, and grappling directly with all these kind of complicated problems. Instead, it just worked. Like, they just played it against itself it wasn't explicitly an evolutionary algorithm, although there's many elements that are like evolutionary algorithms today. Mm. Um, but what's weird is just that it worked. Um, and so that's a really, I think that's very surprising that it's starting to work. Because if you had been part of that community like more than a decade before, like today, you would never have expected this is just going to start working without like some extremely clever way to conquer all of these like really deep pathological problems. And so something changed. And, and I still don't fully understand what it is. I mean, part of it is, I think, just like the magic of deep learning is, 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 is at play here. Like the fact that we can optimize things that have, you know, thousands, thousands, millions of dimensions, like of weights, um, it has, has changed what's possible in, in new ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe that just, it just eclipsed what, what seemed to be at the time theoretical problems are actually not problems. It's kind of like we used to think that neural networks get stuck in local optima, and, but but like once they once we saw deep learning, we saw that they actually get stuck a lot less than we thought if they're big enough. But maybe there's something phenomenal like that going on now in these kind of co-evolutionary or adversarial play systems, or self-play systems, um, and so so that's something now that, that changed sort of a way that I see something. But the one last caveat I want want to just inject there is that I, I'm not I'm still a little skeptical because it's so hard to believe. That I, that I still want to probe these systems further to see if there's some underlying flaws that aren't apparent, even with the amazing results that we see. Like, I mean, they're beating world champions, human world right. champions, but still, there could be some flaws under the surface there. Um, and I'd like to probe more, if I ever had time, to see if there might, if I could actually find some flaws. Um, like, for example, there's, there's weird anomalies, like what happens if you play against an idiot um, under certain special conditions. Um, which, which could expose that they're a little odd in some way. They're still great achievements. Um, so, so it's like my instinct is still, still to like try to find a flaw because I'm, I'm so surprised um, that this is working well now. 
But at the end of the day, it's great that it's working. You know, mm-hmm. all the more potential that it gives us, like to do more incredible things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think current deep learning methods are more memorizing pattern than learning from personal experience when they expose it to a new situation? Do you feel that with the current technology of deep learning, the startup can build application, can be skilled without having the resources of like Google or Amazon or Facebook, etc.? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the, the discomfort that's being caused by some of the recent results from, from various large organizations that are, are just uh, amazing but require absurd amounts of computation. I mean, it's absurd in the sense that most people will never have access to that level of computation. And it sort of contributes to, like, kind of undemocratize the field. There's, like, fewer and fewer people have access to the resources to make, like, really revolutionary progress. And so, of course, that's going to make people uncomfortable. Um, and so, um, but my thought is, if you just take a purely scientific view of this, like, like not, don't think about it personally, because I mean, personally I worry, like, uh, well, what happens to the, to, the, to the researchers who don't have access, that kind of stuff, but, but let's put that aside for a second and just think about this, you know, just purely from a research perspective. Um, from that perspective, of course we have to do these experiments, um, because we can't rule out the possibility that you do need massive computation uh, to achieve certain types of ends. Like that is just one possibility that could be true uh, among many possibilities that we have to entertain uh, as we contemplate like getting to ultimate like AGI. And and so we have to do this. Like there's there these organizations are not, in my view, doing something wrong um, to to push as far down that path as you possibly can just to see where it leads. Um, and it is it is showing. That um, that there are some surprises. Like as you scale, you, we are seeing things. I mean that that are that are interesting. I mean I, I'm not saying AI has been solved, and I'm not saying that other innovations are not necessary. But but certainly we're seeing interesting phenomena that, that we haven't seen at smaller scale. And so so I I'm, I think that we have to accept that this is just possible. That it's just something we're going to have to do. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is expensive. But what other choice do we have? I mean, look at the scale of the human brain. I mean, the scale of the human brain is, is currently beyond, really, the scale of any kind of supercomputer that anybody has access to, including these large organizations. But they're getting closer. Um, but if you need that kind of scale, I mean, it's not crazy to think you might, because that is the scale of the human brain. It's going to be expensive, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, but having said that, though, um, the point, though, the, the, the missing piece that, that, give, that should give people some hope here, here that, are, that are worried about just computation trumping all, um, is, is the issue that I also mentioned that, that it may not be enough. Like, it may not be that, well, we can just, um, you know, increase by an order of magnitude every couple of years, and, and eventually we'll have human-level intelligence with the same, same neural network infrastructure we have today. That may not be the case. In fact, I would be completely not surprised uh, if it turns out that that isn't the case, because because the other element here that matters is architecture and algorithmic infrastructure. Like those are not about the scale. Those are about how how these things work at the algorithmic level and at the architectural level. Mm. And there, I think there is still room for innovation. And the good news for people who don't have access to these massive resources is that many of those types of innovations can be discovered at smaller scales. I mean, I can still sit alone in my garage and think of something different about how to um, structure a neural network 
that could still be revolutionary in terms of enabling them to do things that they can't do now, and in fact could actually make them be able to do those things at a smaller scale, possibly, mm -hmm. like with a better technology. And so there's still, I think, room for this kind of innovation. Um, so I don't think that this necessarily locks people out of making really brilliant innovations. I mean, think of some of the innovations that have happened, like simple things like switching from sigmoid functions to ReLU functions um, for the activation functions of neurons in an artificial neural network. But that kind of switch can, can be demonstrated, the utility of it, at least the interest of it, can be demonstrated on relatively small-scale systems that don't require millions of dollars to construct or run. And so more things like that could be in the pipeline. It's certainly possible. Um, so my view is, you know, let's let's it, let's do everything. You know, let's let's try to scale up. Um, we have to do that because I think it, the evidence is too great that it might matter. Um, but also, let's keep making these kind of low-level innovations that that don't require a gigantic compute to either conceive or even initially test. And then let's take those innovations and put them into these large-scale systems too, and see what it does to them. And there's room for all of that. And we should do all of it. And I do think that it's, it's a shame if some of this locks some people out, like the large-scale stuff. Obviously, large locks people out who can't do large-scale stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that's a shame. But but it's more like that's just how the world is. And, and it's not a moral issue. It's just unfortunate that some things might require large-scale. And it's going to be, I mean, if we want to make progress, we're ultimately just going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would like to ask you about resourcing, because that's something that has been raised uh, by many um, many students as well. Resourcing is becoming a substantial problem for all uh, but a few extremely well-funded labs and companies. With, with current reports suggesting that your new employer invested several million training in their most recent language model. How you can ensure uh, how we can ensure proper diversity of work outside the scope of an elite few institution. Um, and if, if there's a concern about reduction in computation and over focus of few domains. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's related to the diversity, maybe in resourcing, and yeah. I don't know what you thought about that. Yeah, very important question, and obviously related to the previous discussion yeah. that we just had. I mean, um, I do think we're facing, um, uh, I don't know if it's at the level of a crisis yet, but we have a problem uh, with this, where it is there is a problem with, with the, the increasing concentration of expertise and resources and smaller or more and more exclusive groups, mm. um, often now clustering more in industry than academia. And to what extent does that lock out more independent and also academic organizations from being at the cutting edge? I mean, it is something to be worried about because it eventually what it does is it, is it, is it, dis, is it disintegrates like the academic institution, like people, the academic, like the professors, let alone the students. I mean, if you think about the professors, they are going to, to realize that they don't have a choice if they want to be at the cutting edge of the field, mm. but to align with these larger organizations. Um, and that can cause them to leave academia. Yeah. Mm. Um, and this is, this is really bad for the future of the field, because where are we training the future scientists? Um, and one answer might be, well, well, they can be trained at these big organizations like um, Google or something. But, but that is not a satisfying answer. Like we don't want like all of the future generation of scientists concentrated just in commercial organizations. Like it's up to the commercial organizations to train the next generation, because I mean the academic freedom and the um, the, the the lack of 
commercial prerogative that exists in the academic world, I think, is important for science. Like, there has to be some of it, I believe, um, for science to move freely forward and to be inclusive. Um, and so, I, I do think that this is a serious problem. Um, and um, you know, one 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 partial answer, which isn't fully satisfying, is where we can all work together. I mean, and, and there's some of this that does go on. Like some of these organizations or some of these companies do help to fund professors, give access to their um, to their resources to professors, and then thereby their students also get access to those resources. Um, but even that isn't you know fully satisfying because then the whole academic world is now dependent on the commercial world like to move yeah. forward. That's not very really ultimately satisfying. Um, and so the real answer is like if we want to preserve the integrity of the academic world and, and, and to have real progress in, in science and academia in AI um, is to grapple with this issue. And it's not just about computation, it's also about expertise, I think. Um, because like the, the fact that people people are also a resource and like the 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 the, um, the use of commercial organizations just have incredibly attractive offers um, that are very hard to match uh, for for academic institutions, and so all of that is causing this this, this change of concentration like away from academia into industry, and so to grapple with that I think probably requires some radical thinking, not mm -hmm. just let's work with industry, but um, from the ground up like what is what is wrong with academia that it's causing this to happen. And it really might be more specific to AI. Like it maybe it doesn't have to do, you know, with like chemistry or something. Like that their issues may not be the same. Like it, it's something maybe unique to what's going on in AI and computer science because of like the, the central role of computation. Or, or maybe it is I mean I don't know if it's happening in chemistry. I'm not an expert there. But like it's probably not happening in English literature, for example. Yeah. So it's not like all of academia has to grapple with this. I'm not I don't think. But at least the fields that are that are focusing on computation uh, are going to have to grapple with it. It might be a radical problem or require a radical solution because we might need to um, to think rethink like the whole system. Like if we really really seriously want to keep academia going, like for example, like the grant system just doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. I mean, like applying for grants, um, which is basically begging for money every few months, mm. um, which is an enormously time-consuming process that professors have to go through, which I know firsthand because I did it for years. Um, it's absolutely grueling, and it may have worked for a while. There's many, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't good arguments for it. Like, there's a lot of reasons to have a system like that. But you have to admit that it's starting to not work very well because of this outer, outer context. Mm. Like, in a vacuum, it makes sense. But we're not living in a vacuum. We're living in a world where computation is concentrating in industry and expertise is concentrating in industry and funding is concentrating in industry. And so we're just basically playing ignorant to, to pretend that like this can go on sustainably and just have people begging for the scraps uh, from, from the NSF mm -hmm. or, or from DARPA on the side. And, and it's just it just becomes less and less attractive year by year to have to do that. And so what can we do to, to, to do something about this? I mean, I think it's just it's just a really serious problem, um, and and really needs to be rethought. And in some ways, it, it's an it's an elitist problem because like it's actually to the advantage of the people in this field. They're just really lucky that they're living in a world like this, where like there's so much resources being poured into AI mm. that like we have, that, that now the over overarching institutions even have to confront this issue. 
Um, and, and that's good for the researchers. Like it's nice to have like the institutions have to confront like the grant system. Like maybe that's not happening in some other fields. Um, and so in some sense, this is a good problem to have. Um, but but nevertheless, it is the reality. I mean, mm -hmm. this is what is happening. And so um, and and so I think it's a very very important thing to keep to figure out how to keep academia competitive and to keep to keep it attractive uh, to, to the academic community, to professors and to students, um, as a way to, to start careers, to keep this freedom that, that is just so unique to academia alive, and the diversity that academia represents of mm. thinking alive. So I think we have to do that. Um, but I just want to add one, one quick thing to all of that, is that um, even with that having been said, I still think there's room, as I said before, to make some advances that aren't computationally intensive. So I just want to, to keep that hope alive, that like I don't believe that everything will be solved that we need to solve in the field of AI through just increasing scale. It is interesting yeah. and it should be done and it will do cool stuff. But I think you can still be you can still be a high school kid like sitting sitting in your bedroom playing on your computer and you might come up with something awesome that could change yeah. the world. I still believe that's true. Yeah. Um, so we should all keep the hope of that, like and not just give up and be like everything is now going to be done by these giant, uh, giant organizations and companies. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't have to be the case. But we still have a big problem, obviously, and need to rethink a lot. I would like to stress on that, that very serious point. And I think that's a question also we have from other students about intellectual inclusiveness as well. Because they comment that academics tend to establish strong beliefs about uh, other fields that come off often as arrogance or elitism and discouraging exploration of ideas outside the mainstream. So maybe you highlight really honestly the issue we have, but what could be solution to be more inclusive uh, culture or an, around competitiveness idea and ideas? Yeah, that's, that's, that is such a hard question and, and obviously a very important question. Um, and so I, I don't want to give, uh, I don't want to give uh, two pat answers because it wouldn't be taken seriously enough because it's a massive question. But like, I guess I would think along the lines of um, like we need to um, we need to get away from winner takes all uh, type of thinking, which I think um, that the that the system, especially the grant system, is sort of uh, tends to move towards. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, if, if you want diversity of any any type of diversity. Um, you have to have a signal and system that's basically going for diversity. Um, I mean, this, this is an algorithmic principle too. Like our, our algorithms, like the algorithms I work on, are, are all about maintaining diversity. Like trying to maintain a diverse set of potential solutions. Um, and so the principle applies also institutionally. Like in, in our outer world of human beings, um, you have to explicitly do stuff like to maintain this kind of thing. And um, a system where it's like I just go in there into a free for all and beg for hundreds of thousands of dollars is is, is not going to do that automatically. It's just not going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's also a sort of a collective need like that we, we have. Like it's not just about um, like keeping uh, giving everybody a little bit of the pie so that everybody can do their own thing. Like we have these computational problems that are collective. Like the fact that everybody needs access to like supercomputer level computation. Um, and, and so if everybody has their own little slice of computation that they have to pay for themselves, how is that going to happen? It's not going to happen. So some centralization of computational resources that democratizes things so that like anybody, anywhere in any institution 
across the country or perhaps across the world um, can access it to some extent, like maybe necessary, um, so, so that people can stay at the cutting edge, and 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 also um, you know changing the way that we allocate, like just, just paying people to do research. Like I'm, I, like the more I have experienced and the more yeah. I've been in the, this world of, of, of like allocating funds, the more I think. Um, we should be way more willing to take risks. Like, yeah. um, give people resources um, who, who you don't have a hundred percent consensus are like the greatest thing in the world. Like, let's just try things sometime. Let's give other people a chance. Mm. Um, let, let's see what people who, who not everybody agrees with are thinking. Um, yeah. Like, if somebody made it through this pipeline as far as getting a PhD and getting hired as a faculty. Um, let's let's give them the respect to give them a piece of the pie, even if everybody doesn't agree with them. Like, I mean, I take about everybody agreeing because that's what that's what grant panels are like. Like, they're basically saying, if you don't get consensus, we're not going to give you any money. I mean, basically, um, yeah. and and this is a way of sort of like a winner take all system that, that definitely diminishes diversity in my view. Um, and the, the, like the idea, the proposition of like giving funding to somebody who a lot of people disagree with, it's like insanely radical. Like, if people don't even want to talk about it. Um, like at the funding agencies, but to me it's like total common sense and the direction we need to be going. Mm. Um, and so I don't know what you need to break through that wall, um, but like we, we need to, to think about that because ultimately the ability to do research is about the allocation of the resources that, that allows research to be done. And so if you want diversity, we have to rethink how we allocate those resources. And that, that's where I think we have to begin with addressing the problem, even though I don't have the whole answer to it. It's a big problem. I think I, I would like to mention also because I really am inspired by uh, your book as well, My Greatness Cannot Be Planned. And we mentioned in one of your talks that Big Frida was severely rejected by NSF. And that's why it's yeah. a constant objective. And I really was reflecting in this point that in your research for four years, three years, you expect something. But maybe that's very profound. And I don't know if it's, do you think that the people who are responsible for funding maybe they are not eligible to be in that position. I'm sorry to say, but I feel that's very profound uh, concept that you have to must have objective. And yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think that's, that's something. Place, yeah. That's something very profound. And uh, yeah, if we reflect about that, I think uh, many things will be changed. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that's one of the reasons. I just wanted to interject. That is one of the reasons that, that I'm so I feel so strongly is because of that particular experience you just mentioned, like the pick reader experience. Yeah, like something is just wrong. That like I was so flatly rejected there um, by in that case it was NSF uh, because they they said that that it's not clear you know what good would come of this system. Mm. Um, and, and, and like the whole point of the system was it was exploratory. Like I, don't, I didn't know what good would come of it. I mean, I'd love to be just upfront about that. I'm just saying, look, here's something profoundly interesting. Like this has never been done before. I don't really know what it's going to lead to. Yeah. It's going to be something interesting though. And I can't get that argument through. Like it's not just that, that it wasn't agreed upon. It was that it was just roundly rejected. Like it's completely antithetical to the philosophy of how research should be done, which makes absolutely no sense because I think I wouldn't even be talking to you right now if I hadn't been pick reader. I mean, like a lot of my whole career has been profoundly affected by like the results of pick reader, which was what originally yeah. drove me towards this fascination with diversity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and so so it's like really almost ironic, you know, that like that this project that was like fundamentally about that is like exactly what NSF doesn't want. Um, and 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 yet here I am, you know, because of that project. 
Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I feel really strongly that it would be great to, to, to somehow dig into this culture that we have. It was so hard, though. You know, that's why I wrote that book, or that's why we wrote it, myself and Joel Lane, who's my, my really wonderful co-author, who also thought a lot about it deeply about the topic. Um, it's, it's partly to dislodge this kind of thing, like to change the culture. And I don't think we've achieved it, at least with, with something like, like uh, the, the granting agencies. I mean, they still work pretty much the same way. Um, and the book has had only mild impact on anybody's actual uh, implementation of these kinds of ideas. So, so that's, it just shows just how hard it is to change this aspect of our, of our culture. And thanks so much for this book. I think it's very really profound and, and deep. Thank you for that. And Thank you. I, I would like to ask about now you have the two experiences, and I think many graduate students can relate about that. You have worked in academia and now in industry. What is the biggest discrepancy you have witnessed beyond funding? Something may be fulfilling for you. I don't know how um, you can relate experiences. Yeah, what is the difference? There, yeah, okay, that is an interesting question. Um, so, um, I think that both academia and industry have pros and cons. So I definitely don't think there's like a, a single knockdown argument for one or the other. You know, you have to take the nuance that, that comes with different opportunities. And um, so, you know, for for academia, what I think is is an advantage is to to a large extent PhD students and what they represent. Um, I mean, PhD students are people who come in. With, with the long haul in mind. I mean, they are ready to start a career and they are ready to do something big and they are ready to commit, to commit years to it. Um, and, and this is a very, very valuable thing um, to have people like that on a team. Um, and, and it's hard to recreate that in an industrial setting because although it is true that you can get extremely talented people in the industry, and you do, um, and you can pay them more, so you can get people that would otherwise be very hard to get, um, the problem is that it doesn't have the same stickiness. So, like in industry, that they don't have a PhD to come through. Um, so, like they could leave any time. It doesn't have any. There's no really sweat off their back if they leave. Um, and so, like it, I think it, it it leads to a little bit more of short-term thinking because you've got to keep people sort of feeling like always something exciting is going on, or else they just go get another job because people are extremely talented. Um, and so, and so in academia, I think you can think longer term. And I know some people will tell me I'm being naive and say, "Are you kidding me? Or academia is not long term thinking at all?" Blah blah blah. But, but the truth is, I think it does. It does have that advantage. There is at least a provision there that gives us the ability to think long term and to sit down with people who have a really a blank slate, like who are willing to just completely fill themselves with an entire new field. Now, that's I think a great thing about academia, which I, which I really love. Um, but you know there are disadvantages and advantages that industry has, and, and, and of course you you mentioned funding, and I'll try to stay away like from the topic of funding because other than funding, but but the the fact you don't have to keep on begging for money is a humongous advantage, and it's not just because I'm not saying it's because of the money itself. I'm saying it because of the time investment, like the time invested in academia to begging for money is just atrocious. I mean it it, it just sucks your soul away. <laughs> At least that's how I feel about it. Because um, you're making no progress. Like you, you have this. I have this feeling that in my mind, I have all this potential to be creative and to come up with things and to do things that are really interesting. And yet somehow I've committed like 50% of it to just writing sales pitches, um, which, which when rejected have contributed nothing back to the world, nothing at all. Like what is the use of a rejected sales pitch? Um, 
Now I know that, that there's some benefit, like some people say, well, at least you spent some time like, you know, structuring your thoughts. But I mean, give me a break. Like the amount of time I spent structuring my thoughts was not worth it. Yeah. Um, it's good to spend some time structuring your thoughts, but this is just excessive and crazy. Like I didn't need to spend that much time. I can plan, I'm perfectly capable of planning out interesting research directions without being literally handcuffed and forced to do it with half my time. I mean, that's just nuts. And, and yet that is what we're forced to do there. And, I, and that, that to me is, it's not just a problem of time, it's also a problem of morale. Like it really hurts morale and it grinds you down over years. It's not something you notice right away. Like at least, I mean, nobody likes writing. Most people don't like writing grants even right away. But, but for me, I was excited to do it at first because I was like, you know, it's a whole new career, it's a new opportunity. I'm going to be able to, to ask to do things that have excited me for years. Finally, I can get try to ask people to support me to do that. But over years, it really grinds you down. It grinds your soul, like yeah. to be constantly begging and begging, and, and 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 to learn, you know, just kind of the cynical way that it works. Like if you get good at it, and I guess I got decent at it, or like at least I got people to, to give me some funding. Like if you get good at it, you start to realize that it's a game that you have to play in a certain way, and it isn't necessarily the same as like just being honest about like what you really want to do it's more like you have to play this game in a way that like aligns with the way that they that we know that these panels work and the way that the, the objectives are articulated by the, by the funding agency um, which aren't necessarily the same as my own philosophy of how research should go but I, I know I have to just do it um, and that that is hurtful that is that is grinding and, and hurtful to morale over time yeah. And, and, and when it's like 50% of your time or something, at least of your research time, if not your actual time working over the week, it's just, it's just really, really, really painful. And I think it, it, it somewhat is, is why you see declines in research careers as people get older. Because it's like you can only take so much of that over time before it just wears you down. Um, and that's just, to me, is somewhat tragic. Um, and so industry has the great advantage of not having that. Um, industry is willing to trust somebody who has has either really innovative ideas or track record um, to try something. Um, and, and that's not true of all of industry, but the pockets that are focused on innovative research tend to be progressive in this way. And that's a great thing about being in industry. You just feel a feeling of liberation um, that like you can try things, you can go in directions, and, and there's not this gigantic infrastructure of just wasting time and resources around it. It's not just the, the people writing the grants, by the way. It's the people evaluating them also taking exactly. a lot of time. Like the whole up and down infrastructure, just massive. That's around the granting, uh, the, the whole granting institution. So, um, so it's nice and liberating to be in industry that way. And also, you get the computational resources, which you, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. It's just um, industry tends to have more. Um, I mean, I've never seen the kind of computational resources I saw when I first moved, for example, to Uber, um, in my academic position. Um, and it's just nice to suddenly have massive computational resources. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so you get that, and, and it's like, and you're not constantly trying to figure out how you're going to get it. Like, I mean, because in academia, it's another thing you get to get money for. It's you got to fund the computational infrastructure in order to give me the right to do the research, because I need it more and more, like the more the field progresses. So, um, so I don't think, so now when you compare those two, I think there's, there's not, um, and by the way, in industry, I'm talking about industrial research lab. Like if you just were like obviously working as a software engineer in a regular uh, a programming project, it's not going to be anything like what I described. But I'm talking about industrial research labs, like like the big famous ones. Like those have those have these advantages. And so um, like if you look at it all big picture, I don't know. I don't really know. Like you know what's better. It, it, both have good sides to them, you know. And I, I think it, 
ideally, I think everybody should experience both. Like that's what I've done. Um, and so I feel very fortunate to have been able to do yeah. that. Um, cause, cause there's no, there's no, like the older I get, the more I see that there's, there's just no perfect world, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. everything has downsides and everything has upsides. And, mm-hmm. and so it like the perfect world for me is that some billionaire just give me a billion dollars and says, do whatever you want, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, you have to deal with some compromises on something and there are different trade-offs. I think you really said it really brilliantly. I think that freedom to do what you're passionate about. And I think your story is really inspiring for many and to be persistent in your ideas. So, um, yeah. But I don't know yeah. if, if in, in, in academia we have issues, but I don't know if there's something maybe beyond the academia industry, another entity we can come up with that merge two of them. I don't know, but uh, that would be interesting. True, true. That is interesting. I mean, I think people talk about this. Um, at like higher levels, like um, you know, there are people who, who talk about starting institutes and things mm-hmm. like that, um, and, and have visions of like the ideal research environment. Um, and there are even some places that are that are like actually about that. Like for example, I did a, sab- a sabbatical at the Santa Fe Institute, yeah, um, which is you know sort of a, a utopian vision of, of like a research community, but it's not truly utopia there because they still have to get money. Like, they don't have enough. So, so in the end, like, they're still applying for grants over there. Um, I love the place, by the way. I think Santa Fe Institute is awesome. But, yeah, yeah. but it just, you know, to really get to the utopian experience would mm. require massive, massive resources. Um, and I think um, it could happen. It might happen, you know, at least in AI, because of the fact that, um, because, like, everybody cares about AI now, and that there are really massive resources pouring into it. So... I wouldn't put it past the world that, that there could be something like this, that actually some best ideal, idyllic situation could arise. Um, or even as, you know, approaching, like if you look at places like OpenAI, where I am now, or, or, or DeepMind, for example, um, or Facebook AI Research, or, I'm not saying they are perfectly utopian, mm. but but you, you see that they have been very well resourced, um, like DeepMind, or, or, yeah, or all these places. And, and that that does give them a degree of, uh, of freedom to to give people something closer to the ideal. I don't think we're at the ideal um, from like the dream of the individual researcher, but closer. Um, and you know, there's always constraints even at those places because ultimately they live within the constraints of the funding environment and the missions that they have. So from the individual researcher's perspective, there's still going to be constraints, not utopia. Um, but it's closer, you know, to kind of the idyllic. Thing that, that we wish we all had somehow as researchers, um, but but nothing is quite there. And I mean, I, I would also point out that training the next generation remains very important, um, even if even if it's some researchers might find it distracting. You know, I mean, if I don't have to teach them, then I have to have more time to do research. Um, but it's something we also have to think about when we think about these kind of like utopian research visions. Where will that come from? Yeah. Um, like if, if the utopia is created. And sucks in all of the greatest people in the world, but who is teaching the next generation? Then? Exactly. Um, and so, like at some level, it doesn't just come down to money. It comes down to, like everybody has to put in their fair share at some point to advancing the institution itself, um, which makes makes it not perfect for everyone. I mean, like you you can't have everything you want and also have the world be as good as it possibly can be. Some, you have to make sacrifices at some level. So, so I don't think anything will ever be truly perfect. Um, and but but we should still strive to, to fix like the intrinsic, very serious weaknesses that we have, 
that we've talked about like over our conversation today. I, mean, I think we have some serious problems, um, especially yeah, with the maintenance of diversity and the soul-sucking nature and the loss of talents in, in the academic world, and, and we should struggle to do something about that. I agree with you. And I think that because we close to this end, uh, there's a question I would like to ask you, how we ensure that the AI we develop or robotic, for example, is going to be beneficial to humanity as a whole? I think this question maybe when we see what you say, what we, you do, what you do, or why, why purpose you're doing, what you do. I think, I don't know if you can answer this question maybe for your students mm -hmm. as well, if they do the research. Yeah, so that's a very, very, very important question. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't at all want to dismiss such an important question as a very important question. How will this benefit everybody? Mm -hmm. um, and I just want to, I want to make a disclaimer here that I'm speaking for myself here. Speaking only for myself, because I'm speculating on this is a very, very important and sensitive issue. Um, but like my own sort of personal feelings about that um, is that number one, it should benefit humanity, um, and if it won't, um, we need to be very worried. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Mm. Um, and so, with that in mind, um, then. Clearly, there are some things that may benefit humanity, um, but, but those are easy. I mean, like like saying something like, well, robots could rescue people from very, very dangerous situations. But that's obviously good for everybody. Like, and nobody has to take any personal risks, and you rescue people, and then they're alive when you wouldn't have been. That's great. Um, but obviously, that comes with all kinds of existential risks, like the humanity, too, that come with the having the human-level intelligence in the machine. It, it obviously presents all kinds of potential risks. And so um, I think that, that, that the answer to this question is, is, is clearly extremely complex. Like, there isn't a simple answer to it. Like, you could say, well, we need to just make sure that, that the things that we let the AI do are things that are good for us. But, I mean, please, no, nobody thinks at all seriously about this, uh, thinks that that kind of response is adequate. I mean, like, for example, what is good for us? Who even is us? Like, we probably disagree about what's good for us. Um, and then, like, uh, how do we actually make sure it does only those things? Like, even if we did agree on that, like, AIs to some extent do things that are unpredictable, at least currently. So, how, how are we going to control them? Um, and like, where do the guardrails come from? And so, the, we don't, we have very little idea, I think, on this. Like, we have to be honest about what we don't yet know. And so, to to address it, I think what we need to do is put serious effort into it, starting mm -hmm. now, starting before now, really, which means have people who dedicated job it is to deal with this. Now you may think, um, not you, but generally people may think, but but if it's so potentially risky, maybe we shouldn't do it at all. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sympathetic even to that. Like I think like when we're talking about existential risks, like it's true that you have a right to question why we're doing it at all. That's perfectly reasonable to me. But but the problem with that is that I think someone is going to do it anyway. Like no matter how strongly you or I feel that this may be too risky, uh, someone else won't feel that way, and they will pursue it. So I don't think it's really, you can't just quit and say, I'm not going to work on it, um, because uh, it's going to happen anyway. Um, what, you, what you have to do is say, well, it's better that the people working on it are people who, are, who care about this and who will think about this, like think about how these guardrails are going to get in there, um, and who are willing to, to, to take uh, make some moral effort here, not just technical effort, to try to make sure that the outcomes are as good as they possibly can be. And if, and because if those people just quit, then the only people working on it will be people who don't care. 
Um, and so to me, that somewhat that somewhat justifies for me why I'm still doing this. You know, because I I have thought about this since grad school. Like, what if this is dangerous? Um, but then I think, um, but like, well, if I just left the field, um, then the people doing it will be people who don't care whether it's dangerous. Exactly. Like that doesn't make sense either. So I think to, to be participating in the advance of technology and, and have at least caring about this is probably the best we can do at a point where like the dangers are still somewhat foggy and unknown. Um, and, and we should all um, individually and, and, and as organizations um, make this a priority to begin focusing on the, on the risks, even the ones that aren't existential, like there's risks to the economy. We should focus on all the risks and think about what they are in the short term and the long term and try to mitigate them but I don't think you're going to stop stop the march of technology. I mean, technology will march on, and, and there's there's like no example of like just stopping technology flat in the, in the in the progression of civilization. And so I think what we have to do is, as we progress, we need to grapple with what that progress means for us um, as people and ethically and morally, and really try to address it seriously. Um, even though that's not that's not the most satisfying answer because because I didn't I didn't solve the problem for you. Then. Yeah, but that's both from Masuk. Uh, I, I would like to ask you, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Even your, your, your journey, what do you think about ego? Oh, that's a, that's a very unusual question. Um, so ego, like the extent to which I think about like my own greatness. Yeah, um, ego, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's, um, you know, that's really interesting to think about that. That goes to sort of like where ideas come from. And I, I always find these kind of things really interesting that you don't hear a lot of public discussion about. It's like, what's really going under the hood of the, of the head of that mm. researcher? Like, why are they doing what they're doing? Yeah. Not just like, how did you think of it, but, but why did you think about this? And what does it mean to you? Um, what's motivating you, in other words? And so somewhere underneath those motivations, there is ego. That's true. Um, like, people do things... Partly uh, for altruistic reasons, um, partly for self-interest, um, partly for egotistical reasons, partly to get attention, partly to get fame, um, and different people have different combinations of those motivations. But I guess I, I mean, I don't know what's inside the heart of every researcher, but but I guess I kind of think that everybody has an ego. Like I feel like humans have egos, so it's there, yeah. um, and so it's part of the motivational complex. I mean, ego is part of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, we, 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 and, and I think we have a right to have an ego. Like, I, I'm somebody who, who thinks that, like, it's okay to feel good about yourself. Mm. I think we have, I want to give people permission to do that. Um, that, like, it's, it's not, like, we, we didn't ask to be in this world, we were put into this world, and we don't have to suffer. Like we, we have a right to enjoy being here. And so, if if doing something really cool makes you feel good, then I think you, you should do. You should feel good. Obviously, mm -hmm. you don't want to let it go to your head and go crazy with it. But I think everybody has a right to feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I'm not totally against like you know ego being a motivating factor, and everybody like, having a right to really enjoy like just feeling good about what they've done in their life. Um, and I mean, I just don't think it should go to your head, which is obvious. Like if you go become an egomaniac, then you, you start to be less kind to other people and, mm. and to discount their feelings and things like that. And that's bad, obviously. I, I do believe in kindness and that ultimately that's what's very important to succeed through kindness. Um, but, but, uh, but, but then, um, you know, how much is it really, how much of a motivating factor is ego? And I think it is not 
always the primary motivating factor because the other motivating factor lies curiosity. You know, and I feel like that's a more that's a more pure motivation because you don't need to be ashamed of being motivated by curiosity. Um, and so there's some balance between ego and curiosity, like as a scientist, where like, and I think what happens is that like early on it might be more curiosity, and ego comes in later. That's kind of my theory. Um, that like, because early on you haven't yet seen what it's like to get tons of attention, mm-hmm. um, and so you're more more motivated by just like this is really interesting, and I just want to see what happens. But then you do something and, and you get a lot of attention. And like suddenly there's this new reward signal, which is like, wow, the attention itself was fun. Like the, the, the answer to my curiosity was fun yeah. at first, but, but now I'm getting this other reward, which is also fun. Yeah. Um, and so it, it grows. And I think that, um, that so I, I would guess that the more later stage researchers are more ego driven, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, yeah, it's, it's not the most pure motivation, even though I think you have a right to enjoy your, your ego to some extent. I, I still think, obviously, we'd, be, we'd feel better if we're just motivated by curiosity. So I think it's important to, to try to, to check that tendency. You know, like, we're, especially as older researchers, like, to, to not become consumed with ego. Eventually, it'll, I think it will, it will be anyone's downfall. I mean, if you're totally motivated by ego, then your curiosity will start to leave. And you'll, I think what you'll do is double down too much. Like, if what you've done so far has gotten you, gotten your ego a lot of good feedback, you'll keep doing it because you want to keep getting that reward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll, that'll make you less likely to do things that could put your ego at risk. Like, I do some, if I do something crazy that nobody expects me to do, um, like, it might push me out of this comfort zone where, where I've gotten all this nice feedback. Um, and so I might be less likely to do it if I care a lot about being a big deal. Um, and so I think to really be effective as a scientist, you have to check your ego to some extent so that you're willing to just give that up because you always have to be willing to, to reinvent, to be able to go somewhere new and, and, and go to new horizons. Um, so it's complicated, yeah, but I think it, it does play some motivating role in, yeah. in, in I'm sure everybody's life. I would like to stress about your point about kindness, but I think, I think it's more support quality for being a researcher. You know, there's, I, I would remember that... Um, a long time ago, I remember people saying, maybe it was high school, that like the way to get ahead in the world is to be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Some people really believe that. Um, I've always thought that's interesting. You know, like is there a way to just succeed by being nice? Yeah. Um, and I've recently been thinking that, um, some ways, kindness is a sign of intelligence. You yeah. Know? It's like the hard way, in a sense. Like if you can succeed by being kind, like you really have to be smart. Like if you you can succeed through cruelty. But it's like it's like you don't think things through. Just you take things, you do things like like the easy way. Um, and so I feel like there's some correlation between kindness and intelligence that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and I always, I really, yeah, I, I just um, I much prefer like if if I could feel proud of myself, like mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't treat people in a bad way. I'm not saying that I have never done that, but but it, it would definitely make me feel good. Yeah, I'm perfect, ego of course, you. yeah, yeah. Um, if I could succeed through kindness, that would be great. Yeah, of course, I agree with that. And one of the question also: Do you accept PhD student? That's something many students asking you. Do you accept student now? Well, sadly, because I now have moved to uh, OpenAI, I, mm. I don't have students anymore. So, so the answer is is no. But it's mm. not because I'm a, a professor who doesn't want students. It's because I'm not a professor. Okay. Um, it's just I moved to OpenAI, so. I, I am, um, though, uh, recruiting and accepting um, new hires. Mm. I'm starting this new group. Um, 
So uh, any listener that's interested in open-endedness um, and working with me, I, I would encourage to, to get in touch and I'd be more than happy um, to, to talk about joining the group. But it wouldn't be as a PhD student, it would be as an employee. Okay, great. So lastly, I would like to ask you what the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and would life be changing for you? Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll go with um, I'll go with what my my dad told me mm. um, long, long time ago when I was um, starting um, when I was just graduating from college, and and I I had a job offer um, to start a, a job like as, as basically as a software engineer, and I also had the opportunity to start a PhD program. Um, and, um, you know, I was like, I was leaning to the PhD, honestly, I was leaning there, but I still wanted to think about the choice. And my dad said, you know, um, the, the, the big difference between a PhD and just going straight into industry is you're going to have so much more opportunity in your life to pursue the things that interest you. Um, and I, that, that is, that is, seems like such good, a good point I mean not just for why to pursue a PhD but just like I just think back if I had taken that software engineering job where would I be now um, like it's just such a wonderful thing to be able to pursue things that interest you and like the fact that the world offers that possibility um, and PhD remains I think a, a viable path to that like every path you could take to doing something that's really great is hard people should be aware of that like getting to do things that you want to do that interest you does not happen automatically. It doesn't matter what path you take. You have to really be good like to get to that point. Um, and you have to have a lot of luck uh, and put in a lot of effort and so forth. Um, but, but, but even with all of that, um, as far as the, the possible pathways that exist, I mean, PhD is, is one of those pathways. Um, and the other thing he said to me is like, it's probably just do it now and not later. Like don't delay it. If you're going to, Try to get to a point where you can do things that interest you. Mm. Just get on that road right now. Um, like, don't go for a few years, have fun, make money, and whatever you think you're going to do. But it's just such a valuable thing to have that freedom. Um, just do it now. And so I did, um, straight out of college. And um, and I and I believe that was just completely true. Like, it's there's I don't I mean if you're doing something that you find interesting, it's like it's I, like it's a cliche, but it's not a job. You know, you're just, it's just a joy. Um, yeah. And hopefully every aspect of your life will be a joy. So, so that privilege to be able to do that is, is worth it, I think, um, to take that risk. Because you are taking a risk if you go for a PhD. It, it might not work out. Um, and we need to recognize that, that risk is part of making these kinds of decisions. It's like people complain, like, you know, if you get a PhD, there's no guarantee at all. You probably won't even get a faculty job. I mean, I see people saying this on the Internet. Well, yeah. I mean, if you go if you go to Hollywood and you start trying to become an actor, there's no guarantee there either. Um, I mean, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to do anything that's really cool that would make you happy. Um, but to do anything that's really, really great for you is going to take a risk. And so everybody has a right not to take risks. And if you're risk averse, you have every right not to take those risks. But you have a right to take those risks too. Like to recognize it's a risk and take it if you think it's worth the risk to have the opportunity. Um, to have a life like that, where you get to actually pursue your passion. I think that's really powerful and deep. And yeah, I would like to thank you for this eye-opening talk. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the great questions. 
Thank you. Great being on your show. Thank, Thank you. you.